Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gil Halstead. I am a former member of the Wisconsin Education Association Council. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WRT possible. Hi there, I'm Anna Ham, a proud member of the Labor Radio News Collective because I have a nose for news and I like to pick it. Today we bring you an update on the ongoing UAW strike. We learn about an upcoming <coughs> unity rally to support OPEIU Local 39 in their struggle with MG&E and learn more about how cuts at UW Oshkosh will affect workers and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining member of WORT and Labor Radio. Madison Gas and Electric continues to stonewall OPI. OPEIU Local 39. Frank Emsbeck has the story. Negotiations for a new contract between Madison Gas and Electric and OPEIU Local 39 have been ongoing since April. Labor Radio spoke with Kelsey Hahn, Chief Shop Steward for the OPEIU Group at Madison Gas and Electric. She characterized the negotiations this way. Frustrating. <laughs> there are many issues on the table, but wages are the key. Han explains. The wages that are in the agreement they proposed are still fundamentally the same wages that they proposed in July to us. And that is a significantly lower across the board raise than they gave IBEW. In its essentials, the company has not moved since July with the exception of agreeing on retroactive pay. The OPIU is seeking the same percentage wage increase that MGNE has already granted IBEW Local 2304. If the wages don't go up, then none of this, none of the other stuff is enough to make a difference. Do you believe that the refusal of MG&E to provide equivalent percentage wage increases is motivated by misogyny and discrimination? It's hard not to feel that way about it when you look at the demographics of our respective units. There were the most diverse group of employees at MG&E. Uh, we have the largest proportion of women, of minorities, and we are the people who they don't want to pay. Meanwhile, the company went on the offensive. It sent out a personal email to all union members with a copy of what MG&E termed as their last, best, and final offer. This attempt to go over the heads of the elected leadership and undercut their ability to bargain appears to have failed. Chief Stuart Hahn explains. The member response to that is not what I think they would have hoped for. Membership saw this and they did see the percentages and they went, well, didn't IBW get 5%? Like, why is this still at this number? And I turned around after that and I sent out a survey to all of my members and I asked where membership wanted us to focus and make sure that we were, you know, speaking for membership as part of this. Three quarters of my members said that they would not vote for the company's proposal as sent by email that day. Negotiations with the assistance of the federal mediator since September are ongoing. 
The parties are scheduled to meet Wednesday and Thursday, but as of broadcast time, we have no word of significant progress. If, as the union anticipates, there is little progress, OPIU Local 39 has called upon the Madison labor community to come out in support of all those locals, including Local 39, who are faced with refusals of companies to bargain decent contracts. The time and place will be announced. A list of sponsors and endorsers in formation. I am Frank Emsbeck for Madison Labor Radio. Monday was D-Day for staff at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh campus, according to sociology and public administration professor and AFT local 6506 union leader Paul Van Oken, the university announced drastic cuts this week, eliminating more than 20% of the entire UW Oshkosh workforce and resulting in the loss of almost 300 jobs. These include retirements, where positions will not be filled, layoffs, and non-renewals of instructional and academic staff. What's been the impact on people there? The morale has been really poor. Official statements from the university attribute the drastic cuts to declining enrollment, the lingering effects of COVID, a 10-year tuition freeze, and decreased state support. While Van Aken agrees that these elements have had an impact on the university's budget, he sees the underlying cause as a politically motivated effort to underfund the entire UW system at the state level. The small group of people that are dominating the state legislature are choosing to pursue political goals at the expense of people working in the state, the students that are seeking high-quality, affordable education in the state, and the future of the state in lots of ways. University leaders have made assurances that the cuts will have minimal impact on students, but several articles written in the Advanced Titan, the student newspaper at UW Oshkosh, paint a different picture. The student experience is certainly affected because there are simply less resources available to them. And one thing that is unfortunate is that part of this austerity strategy, I guess, was a 10-year tuition freeze to just squeeze the university system by saying, we're not going to give you through the typical funding channels the funding you need to operate a high-class university system like we have been. And we're going to severely limit your ability to raise funding in one of the few ways you can, which is through tuition, by freezing it for 10 years. Until this year, the decision was made to lift the freeze, which is good for the university system, but for the students in the middle of it, and this opinion piece that the Advanced Titan put out this week addresses this, that at the same time that they see what's going on, this seems like a crisis unfolding before their eyes. They're also paying more tuition than they were last year. So they're paying more for less, and and they understand it. Students have relationships with all kinds of people that are being let go, whether that's the the lecturers in front of them that teach a lot of the classes, because that's another part of this onion is that we've shifted to putting teaching on a lot of the people in those more tenuous positions, and stuff hits the fan. They're going to be the ones to quietly be pushed out. But students don't know that. They don't pay attention. That's their instructor that they've built relationships with. What are some solutions? I think the best answer to that is we, when I say we, I mean the union, drafted a set of expectations for collaboration that was presented to the faculty senate. Faculty senate unanimously endorsed it, so it turned into a senate resolution, and then that was presented to the upper administration. We took that same language and put it into a petition, which you can find under AFT Wisconsin 
that last time I checked had around 600 signatures. The biggest number, giving evidence to the fact that students, they know what's going on. The biggest group of signers was students. If Robin Voss came to you and asked you, what should the state do to support the UW system, what would you advise him? Stop playing pure politics with people's lives and with this important institution. That's all it is, is pure politics that follows a blueprint from the Republican Party across the country. This DEI boogeyman, which is ridiculous, is causing me to not be able to get a pay raise in a time where I'm already on a furlough and we have not had pay increases that get anywhere close to making up for inflation. But even before that, we're lucky to be at 80% of our peers in the upper Midwest. That's where we've been for years. To just keep piling on because you're trying to crush your enemies is not good for anyone. Get back to where we used to be not that long ago where there was bipartisan support for a world-class university system. That's not too much to ask. That was Paul Van Auken. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Next, Greg Jabowski has this week's latest on the ongoing UAW strike against the big three automakers. Those were voices from yesterday's March for Workers' Rights and Economic Justice in Detroit, where striking workers from Detroit's casinos and from Michigan's largest medical insurance company, Blue Cross Blue Shield, joined striking workers from the Big Three automakers, who have held rolling strikes across the country since the Big Three's contract with the UAW ran out last month. Today, in what has become a usual Friday occurrence, UAW President Sean Fain addressed the union via Facebook Live. Fain announced no new strike actions, but gave what may have been his strongest statement yet in these talks of working-class solidarity and commitment to increased unionization. Bill Ford said it shouldn't be Ford versus the UAW. He said it should be the UAW and Ford against foreign automakers. I want to be crystal clear on one thing. The days of the UAW and Ford being a team to fight other companies are over. We won't be used in this phony competition. We will always and forever be on the side of working people everywhere. Non-union auto workers are not the enemy. Those are our future union family. Since the stand-up strike began, we've had thousands of non-union auto workers reaching out wanting to join our movement. So no, we're not going to partner with Ford in a race to the bottom. And we're not going to partner with the big three to match the low standards of the non-union automakers. Instead, we're going to organize non-union auto workers everywhere. Fain made Ford a particular target this week. So billionaire Bill Ford made his own speech this week, talking down to us and telling us what we should be willing to accept. Literally, the next day, the company made an astounding announcement. Ford Motor E-Company 
said they were going to give an additional $600 million in shareholder dividends this year. That amount of money alone would amount to about a dollar an hour raise for all Ford workers for the entire life of this next contract. Dividends are just throwing money at Wall Street. And I don't have to tell you, lavishing money on people who are already rich doesn't improve the business and it does not improve the economy. Today's talk by Fain focused on what Fain considered negotiating advances made since the strike started, including wages, cost of living adjustments, retirement benefits, job security provisions, and a commitment to ending the system of wage tiers under the classification of so-called temporary work. We're fighting hard to win language across the big three that will make sure that temporary work is just that, temporary. Thane also gave an extended shout-out to workers striking at Mack Truck, a UAW-represented, non-Big 3 company. Last week, Labor Radio reported how Mack Truck workers overwhelmingly voted on a UAW-negotiated agreement, which was followed by an open letter from a rank-and-file caucus at Mack, accusing Fane of not getting enough from the company. This week, Fane made a point of agreeing with Mack workers that they should expect more in a contract proposal. Today's address by Fane occurred as the Big 3 has continued to push back against UAW demands for major increases after decades of concessionary contracts. Stellantis, the former Fiat Chrysler, has hired the union-busting firm Huffmaster to, among other things, get scabs through the picket lines. Labor Radio is unable to confirm whether or not Milwaukee's Stellantis Parts Distribution Facility, which is one of the 38 parts facilities nationally being struck by the UAW, is among those targeted with Huffmaster strike breakers. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. For years, organization, organizers at the nonprofit Worker Justice Wisconsin have advocated for Madison's working class and immigrant communities. Now, we'll hear the story of how they advocated for their own future. Labor Radio has the report. Formed through a reunion of Community Advocacy Group Interfaith Coalition for Worker Justice, an offshoot organization Workers' Rights Center, Worker Justice Wisconsin has been engaged with workers' rights advocacy since 2018. The current focus of their mission, as they state on their website, is to, quote, center all of its programs around collective worker organizing and cooperative development. It was only this year, though, that the six employees in the organization sought and won their own representation. Labor Radio spoke to Robert Crystal, a program director for the nonprofit and newly minted member of the Worker Justice Union, about the organizing process. I mean, the organizing effort was incredibly easy uh, because management is, you know, pro-union. I mean, these were sort of conversations that we'd always sort of had amongst ourselves. And I think we just finally... You know, within the last, I would say, two months, found the time to to really make it move forward. Uh, so, you know, we reached out to Scuffle. Scuffle played sort of a matchmaking role, and uh, eventually we ended up going with OPIU Local 39. Crystal and his fellow union members were thinking about the future when they decided to unionize. So I've been at the organization about a year and a half now. And from the very beginning, like we'd always, we would always say like, yeah, we should have a union because things are, are really good here. You know, a union contract would help make that more stable because it, it you know, there are nonprofits and, and, you know, where things are good, but then management changes and everything sort of drives off a cliff. We wanted to unionize to make sure that the good things stay good. And then also to just create sort of a, a regular check-in that is you know, contract negotiations to talk about how to improve things. The bargaining unit is now a part of OPEIU Local 39, the same local that represents the hundreds of office workers at True Stage who went on strike in May. Crystal says that this fighting spirit factored into his and his coworkers' decision. So, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were part of a, 
of a fighting local. And, you know, by becoming part of that local, we sort of have a more, a closer relationship with those workers, hopefully in the future, and, you know, can be a part of that struggle. And I think it's really important in a place like Madison that the white collar workers be organized. I mean, that's a huge part of the economy. And so I think that factored into it. Now union members themselves, Crystal and his coworkers feel their organizing work in the community has gained new perspective. And because we started this process, we've now been able to say to other nonprofit workers like, hey, we're a nonprofit. We're we unionized. You guys should, too. You know, especially in Madison, where you have sort of a a nonprofit industrial complex where, you know, there's a lot of preaching about social justice and inclusivity and equity and all that stuff. But then we hear about nonprofit workers being treated in a way by their employer that seems to contradict that. And so. You know, when we tell nonprofit workers that organizing is an option, I think one of our hopes is that we can then talk about our our own unionization as a way to build confidence among other nonprofits to say, you guys have these exact same rights. You guys should be able to organize as well. And so that's definitely one thing that's changed, just being able to say that when we talk to folks that are in nonprofits. And then, of course, when we talk to like, you know, 90 to 95 percent of the folks that come to us are immigrant workers, you know, in construction you know, hotels, restaurants, whatever. We always preach like how important it is to be organized, even if things aren't terrible. Like it's good to be organized just because it's sort of a preventative measure. You know, it sort of takes away a lot of the arbitrary power that your employer has. And now we can point to ourselves like, look, we're actually very happy, but we still thought that it was important to do it. So it has, it it does change the conversations sometimes. The union is planning to schedule the first bargaining sessions by early next month. You have been listening to the voice of Robert Crystal, Program Director for Worker Justice, Wisconsin. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Sean Hagerup. As Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip are expected to intensify even further with the support of the U.S. government, organized labor is responding, including here in the Madison area. Greg Jabowski has more. On October 7th, the Gaza Strip, which has been under legal occupation and control by the state of Israel since 1967, erupted, with militants from Hamas breaking through a wall erected by Israel and killing an estimated 1,400 civilians and soldiers, injuring more, and taking an estimated 130 to 150 hostages. In the following week, non-stop Israeli bombing of Gaza more than doubled that number of dead, with just short of 3,800 Palestinians reported dead as of yesterday. On October 11th, the national AFL-CIO issued a short statement reading in full, quote, there can be no justification for the unspeakable atrocities and carnage carried out by Hamas against Israelis over the past several days. The labor movement condemns and stands resolute against all terrorism, and we are concerned about the emerging humanitarian crisis that is affecting Palestinians in Gaza and throughout the region. We call for a swift resolution to the current conflict, to end the bloodshed of innocent civilians, and to promote a just and long-lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians, unquote. Little has abated since, however. The Israeli government has continued to assert that they would wipe out Hamas, without making clear how this will be done without wiping out the civilian population of the Gaza Strip, a tiny strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea with no free passage out, called by Human Rights Watch the world's 
largest open-air prison. Israel has been encouraged by the full support of the Biden administration here in the U.S. Last night, in a rare televised address to the nation, President Biden requested $106 billion in additional military aid to go to Israel and to the ongoing war in Ukraine. To get an idea of the scope of this proposal, this figure represents almost 1.7% of the entire federal budget of the United States of America. Some workers in the labor movement have challenged the state of affairs, including locally. Labor Radio spoke yesterday to Scott McCullough, a member of the Wisconsin Professional Employees Council, or WEPEC, AFT Local 4848, who on Monday submitted a proposal on the crisis at the regular delegates meeting at the South Central Federation of Labor, or SCUFFLE. McCulloch describes it here. To get a statement out and get a position out for our Labor Federation opposing the occupation of Palestine and calling for an end to U.S. funding of the Israeli military and opposing the Israeli apartheid in Gaza. McCulloch explained why a final vote on the proposal did not happen Monday. Sort of escalation of violence has been going over the last, I guess, 12 days now. We weren't in a position to vote on it at the time. I wrote up the resolution the night before got it over and so we didn't have time to make sure that folks could actually get a hold of it in time to be able to review it to be able to discuss it with their unions and so just what we did at the meeting this last week was discuss it and get it out there so that hopefully folks could take it back to their unions see what their unions thought about it and then with a goal of at the delegates meeting in november voting on something concrete mccullough described what happened at the meeting six or seven people spoke saying that it's important for us to, as the Labor Federation, to yeah, make, make a statement and stake out a position opposing apartheid, opposing the occupation, opposing U.S. funding for the Israeli military. And we spent time trying to think through what else we could do, how we could move the conversation up throughout the AFL-CIO, so to the, the state side and to the national AFL-CIO, how we could bring it to our locals and then up through statewide unions and how we could bring it to our government representatives. Now, Scott McCullough of WEPEC. At the time of this broadcast, the Biden budget request had not been acted on today, reportedly due at least in part to the ongoing Republican Party speakership fight in the House of Representatives. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. In 10 years, the racial disparities in Dane County have worsened for income, education, and health. Carol Weidel has the story. Ten years ago, the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families released a baseline report called Race to Equity. Now known as Kids Forward, the organization's 10-year report on the state of racial disparities in Dane County demonstrates how the disparities have grown. Dane County is one of the best places to live in the country, where families and young professionals can thrive. At the same time, Wisconsin is also one of the worst places to live for black people. Many black families are not thriving in Dane County. It is not an oasis for all black residents, especially those of low and moderate income. Multiple sources of data informed a process that amplified the context of Dane County as it comes to the experiences of black residents. Dane County is the fastest growing county in the state, however, black and low-wage earning residents are not experiencing the shared prosperity. This shared prosperity should reach all who work, pay taxes, and are an asset to the community. The gap in prosperity costs the entire community and the state, not just black residents. Compare households earning $100,000 or more. Only 10% of black households earn this much, compared to 39% of white households. 
Another comparison is opioid overdose hospitalizations. Blacks are hospitalized at four times the rate of whites for opioid overdoses. The report has recommendations to eliminate the racialized economic disadvantages facing black families in Dane County. For instance, local employers can raise hourly wagers. Developers and financial institutions can ensure the availability of affordable, safe, high-density, and multifamily housing. Health outcomes can improve with more paid medical leave. Health screenings in the community are needed. Dane County's health care institutions can create career pathways to enter the health workforce. The state can expand Medicaid coverage. Many state and local initiatives can shift the disparities identified in the report. Listeners can learn more at the Kids Forward website, kidsforward.org. For Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Service Employees International Union, SEIU, Healthcare is planning a noon event on Thursday, October 26th to support Unity Point Health Meritor Hospital Service and support employees in their 2024 contract negotiations. Food from a taco truck will be available for SEIU members, and the truck will be parked at the intersection of Mound and Brooks Streets across from Meritor Hospital and the, at the Union Cab location. SEIU thanks Union Cab for allowing them to use their parking spot. The event is planned for noon to 3 o'clock on Thursday, October 26th. A new co-op will celebrate its launch on Wednesday, October 25th from 3 to 6 p.m. on the lawn of the Labor Temple at 1602 West Park Street. El Chisme Cooperative will also celebrate the end of the selling season. Come enjoy tacos, Mexican street corn, nachos, and shaved ice. All proceeds will go toward their new food truck. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Anna Ham. Thanks to editor Frank Emspack, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jabowski, Sean Hagerup, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and members of IBEW Local 2304WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Gil Halstead. We also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned now for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and the professor, Bill Clark. (laughs) ¶¶